Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Most gracious Lady, Mother of God, we beg you, listen to those who pray to you from the depths of our hearts. For you have been revealed as more honorable than anyone on earth and more exalted than any creature, either seen or unseen. Blessed is the root of Jesse, and thrice blessed is the house of David in which you were born. God is with you, and you shall not be shaken, for you are the holy place where the Most High dwells. In you the covenants and oaths of God to our forefathers were fulfilled. Through you the Lord Almighty came to be with us, and blessed are you among women. You are the boast of virginity and the strength of the faithful. You were nourished in the Holy of Holies as the Mother of God. Lady, God-bearer, we now plead with you, accept our prayers and deliver us from the test. Through you, we learned to know the Son of God and were deemed worthy to receive his most holy body and pure blood through your most holy birth, giving, O Mother of God. We also pray you, O Lord and lover of mankind, through the prayers of your all-holy mother, look upon us, your sinful and unworthy servants. Gather us today in this your holy church, guide and protect our public authorities and grant peace to our country and all the nations of the world and crush all tyranny and violence. Keep us in your holiness through the prayers of the Holy Mother of God and of all those who in all ages have been pleasing to you. For you are our God and to you we give glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic priest in the Jesuit order and is president of the Magis Center of Reason and Faith, the Spitzer Center, and the Napa Institute. Father Robert Spitzer earned his Master of Arts in Philosophy from St. Louis University, Master of Divinity from Gregorian University, Master of Theology from Weston School, and his PhD from the Catholic University of America. Author of 10 books, producer of nine television series for EWTN, and founder of six major national institutions, Father Spitzer has made multiple major media appearances, including on Larry King Live, The Today Show, The History Channel, and PBS. It is a great honor to welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Robert Spitzer. Welcome, Father. Good to have you with us. Thank you so very much. Uh, it's a real honor to be with all of you again, and of course, I want to share this information with the Institute of Catholic Culture, because after all, uh, the topic is healing the culture, and um, it's a book I wrote 
uh, way, well, 21 years ago. It was the very first book I ever wrote, uh, very involved in the pro-life movement. And uh, at the time, I could see the need to take back what I'm going to call the categories of cultural discourse. Uh, let me just begin by talking a little bit about culture, and then um, uh, I'm going to talk about taking back the categories of culture. And then the second thing I, I want to discuss is um, personhood, because everything in the pro-life movement centers on this term personhood. And so it's going to be very important for us to make an objective case, but we need to set out some assumptions and criteria right from the very beginning. Then we're going to go into the, the, the sort of the funnel of um, all the categories of cultural discourse, and that's the, the levels of happiness. I know people will be thinking, well, happiness, well, what has that got to do with anything? Well, if you want to follow Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas, it has to do with everything because happiness is the one term that can be chosen for itself. Everything else, everything else is chosen for the sake of happiness. Uh, then once uh, um, we've uh, looked into, uh, I'm going to finish the book, by the way, um, in the next talk uh, next week. Uh, but uh, right now, the, our purpose is to uh, get a really solid foundation with the levels of happiness, because this is a self-motivational paradigm. Basically, my hope is to get people um, especially younger people, students, uh, to move them according to their own designs uh, to be level three and level four, because if they are, that's going to change all these categories of cultural discourse. And we'll talk about um, a couple of them tonight. Uh, first of all, of course, quality of life and success. Uh, that's derivative uh, upon the four levels of happiness. And then we're going to talk about this very important term, love. Um, and I'll save the rest of the categories of of discourse for later. We'll talk about freedom. We'll talk about ethics. We'll talk about that all-important term personhood in a little bit more detail with respect to the four levels. Then we'll talk about rights and the common good. Once we've done that, as you'll see, once these categories of cultural discourse are, um, you know, expounded on, abortion's not, it, it cannot uh, accord level three and level four. So what we want to do is get people up to that level uh, three and level four view of happiness or purpose in life. Once they are there, uh, it's almost impossible to have consistently a pro-abortion position. That just uh, it, it just cannot follow. And by the way, a pro-euthanasia position uh, as well. It is incommensurate with love on the third and fourth levels, incommensurate with um, uh, purpose in life on the third and fourth levels, incommensurate with ethics and freedom, and uh, rights, and personhood on the third and fourth levels, et cetera. So we'll, uh, we'll be finishing it up to, uh, next week, but let me get uh, right now um, to just the whole area of cultural categories. Such an important area. Um, you remember well, maybe what Immanuel Kant once said, you know, about uh, um, the uh, medieval church. He said, well, you know, they're, they're in their dogmatic slumber. Well, our opposition right now is in its dogmatic slumber. Uh, the, the, um, the culture, mainstream culture, has taken over what I'm going to call level one and level two views of uh, purpose in life and all those other cultural categories. They basically right now are the winners, but they don't have to be the winners. We can take back these, cult uh, these uh, categories of culture. Discussion. This is very abstract. Why don't we just 
you know, um, uh, just maybe march in front of the, um, you know, the uh, abortion clinics, uh, which is a very good thing to do. I encourage it. Uh, we maybe we should get involved in the political process and get involved with lobbying our, uh, you know, Congress. Very important thing to do. I, I, I encourage it, but we cannot leave undone the culture because it is the culture which moves people's collective minds and hearts. There is a force in the culture, and that force in the culture is about ideal. Who's the villain? Who's the, the, the hero? Who, what's the, what are the virtues, the collective virtues and the collective vices? We've all heard that term before, the mainstream culture. And it, it's an important term because a lot of people blindly follow the mainstream culture. A lot of people, maybe not blindly, but certainly unreflectively follow the mainstream culture. So our objective, I think as Catholics, as the Institute of Catholic Culture, the first thing we want to do is be hyper aware of this very powerful influence that's out there. This influence that controls virtues and vices and heroes and villains. It controls the principles and the ideals and the values, you know, the, the purpose in life, what makes life worth living. There's something out there that's being, you know, as it were, you know, uh, out for our consumption. And if we believe that cultural force, we want to make sure it's right. And if it's a wrong cultural force, the first thing is we have to encourage our kids not to believe it. We have to encourage our, our young adults not to believe it. We have to encourage sometimes middle-aged people and elderly people not to believe it. So if, if people really want to say, well, I'm a level three and level four person, but they really are, then the idea of having, you know, a, a, a culture of abortion, a culture of death, a culture of euthanasia, that's just not a consistent, logical, uh, and acceptable uh, solution on either the level of the mind or the heart. So this is our objective. We can change the culture. It takes education. But let's, uh, first of all, you know, let me repeat those categories of cultural discourse for just a minute so you can see, you know, what's uh, up for grabs. What is it that controls ideals and principles and meaning in life and values within our culture? Who, what controls the, the heroes and the villains? What controls the virtues and the vices? Here are the terms, happiness, and I'll explain that in a moment, uh, which translates into basically purpose in life. Then, uh, you know, obviously derivative from that are quality of life and success. As the notion of happiness, the dominant notion of happiness goes, so goes our view of, of, uh, of quality of life, and so goes our view of success. And so you'll hear those terms bantied about all the time, but uh, we want to really bring them up to level three and four. That's our job as Catholics anyway, is to try and do that, to make sure our kids are level three and level four, and have uh, defined these terms that I'm going to talk about, these categories of culture discourse, in level three and level four ways, and then follow through on them uh, consistently um, with the, the issues of abortion and, and euthanasia and other life issues. Okay, then the uh, uh, objective then would be also uh, to, to take a look at love, which we will be looking at uh, tonight. Uh, also, the notion of freedom. Is it going to be freedom from or freedom for, et cetera? Uh, we want to take a look at ethics. 
Uh, is it going to be sort of ethics, uh, which is uh, the, the greatest amount of, of uh, utilitarian pleasure uh, for the greatest number of people? Uh, well, how about this? You know, the, the greatest amount of, so, uh, of um, uh, social welfare for the greatest number of people? Uh, how about neighbor welfare for the greatest number of people? Uh, we have to take a look at some of these positions and analyze it. Are these things really level one and two or level three and four? And if they're level one and two, we need to reject them, et cetera. We need to also, of course, get into um, the area of suffering. Very important, especially in the euthanasia issue, because this uh, is constantly brought before us that, um, that uh, people are suffering. And why not end it all? Why not uh, say that this is an adequate solution, a great Stoic solution, right? So you've got the, uh, the Stoics, well, you've got the Epicurean solution to suffering, very level one. If you had a bad day, have the 10 scotches followed by a good, you know, I don't know, a red wine, a cigar, and make yourself happy with some, you know, sensorial pleasure. You know, level two uh, group of people would be the Stoic, right? They would say, well, uh, the whole purpose of suffering is to force yourself to move beyond mediocrity. Don't be a wimp, right? If you're suffering, take it, gut it out. Uh, you know, what does not kill me makes me stronger kind of approach, et cetera. You can see that it's going to follow the levels of happiness, the orphic view of suffering. And of course, we've got even the view of suffering that's dependent upon the love of God. More on that next week. Then uh, you can also see that personhood is going to follow. Oh, there's a personhood one, two, three, and four. There's also going to be a uh, uh, rights one, two, three, four, and there's going to be a common good one, two, three, and four. And so we want to take a look at all of these uh, areas, make those uh, uh, proper uh, definitional assignments, and then go out. First of all, let ourselves not be fooled. Number two, educate everybody we can around us to look at the ads that we're seeing on TV, et cetera, to look at uh, you know, what's being given to us in the mainstream culture, uh, et cetera, and to critique it, to critique it vocally and make sure in our educational systems, if we're sending our kids to public schools, let's make sure that they're level three and level four. That's something which the secular culture can abide. Everything here is not dependent upon a religious argument. Everything here is built on what can a secular cultural buy? What will they listen to? And, and so our objective then is to make something that's self-motivational and something which is not going to be objected to by the secular culture. And of course, we live in an increasingly secular culture. So um, let's take a look at who the big controllers of the culture are. Who's controlling this force of uh, ideals and values and in principles, this collective mind and heart uh, that, that talks about virtues and vices and heroes and villains, who's controlling it? Oh, you'd be surprised to know. Churches are still the number one uh, former of cultures. And I should say that churches who are willing to be vocal, and sometimes uh, churches who are willing to be countercultural with respect to the mainstream culture, um, and those are churches that can have a huge amount of influence. They can have a huge amount, not just in the political arena, they can have a huge amount of influence in everything that's going on. What is tolerated? How definitions are being set out? What things mean? And sometimes all we have to do as citizens uh, in this culture is just say, what do you mean by that? 
It's the question that has to be examined constantly. People throw out the term love. What, what do you mean by love? Uh, you know, what do you mean by that term? What do you mean by freedom? Do you mean essentially freedom from constraint, commitment, and obligation? Uh, freedom from responsibility? Or do you mean freedom for others? Freedom to make a difference to something or somebody beyond yourself, et cetera. So, what, you know, that one question can really help us to be great culture changers. You know, what, what, uh, but what do you mean by that? How do you define that term? Uh, love, that seems, you know, suffering, that's a tough term there. Freedom, ethics, those are tough terms. What do you mean by those things? And so uh, I think you can see that once people go, whoa, 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 whoa what do you mean? Uh, all of a sudden, you're really, you can start making an inroad and just say, well, let me propose these four levels of happiness to you. More on that in a moment. So, uh, um, uh, you know, the objective then is churches, number one, uh, uh, you know, number two, I don't have to tell anybody uh, how um, uh, pervasive uh, the educational institutions are, especially in high school and, and college. I mean, this is, we got to be active on these public school boards. Frankly, we should be active on Catholic school boards for high schools and especially for colleges. I mean, there's so much social change, so much cultural change for the worse is being controlled by you know, these uh, educational establishments who go unchallenged continuously. And I think you know, of obviously healing the culture and uh, we have an organization called Healing the Culture um, that, uh, that uh, really prepares educational curricula uh, to help mostly um, uh, uh, high school students, but now we're making curricula for grade school students uh, that are coming up. Just go to healingtheculture.com and uh, you can examine it there. But the point um, that I'm making here is uh, educational establishment is so important. Can we wield a lot of force not only within our church, but from our church into the educational establishments, even the public educational establishments? Yes, you can. Do you stick with the four levels of happiness, et cetera? Uh, I, again, um, huge influence. I don't have to tell you, uh, social media and, and mass media. I mean, obviously, uh, having a huge influence, not a good influence. Decided we are moving from levels three and four, which I'll describe in a moment, to levels one and two. And boy, is that being driven by mass media and social media because it sells stuff. Level one and level two, as you'll see in a moment, sell stuff. Level three and level four, that's only decency. That's only a culture of life. That's only a culture of self-transcendence. That's only a culture that reaches out for the optimal in love and contribution, the optimal in any you know, consideration of who, who the human person is uh, with all of their um, you know, transcendent uh, capacities in the soul, et cetera. Okay, so um, uh, they're a big, huge uh, institution too, of course. Uh, we can see that um, uh, the artistic establishment and uh, the literary establishment are big in that whole uh, process, but you get the point. These people are so-called opinion formers, et cetera, and um, uh, they are culture controllers, but if we can just zero in, you know, like um, an exoset missile on these um, categories of cultural discourse, and start really bringing it, especially to the educational side and to the uh, church side, making sure uh, that we at least those two big, huge bodies are, are being influenced. 
uh, the social media and, and uh, uh, the mass media, they will follow in suit if we can really educate the culture towards something more humane. All right, let's get to this whole um, area of personhood that um, you know the uh, uh, you know determines the pro-life uh, message within our culture, or the palatability, I should say, of the pro-life message within the culture. There are a lot of people out there who really think that the, the term human person admits of some kinds of degrees, uh, some kinds of qualifications, some kinds of uh, criteria that are not intrinsic criteria. I'll explain it in a, in a minute. But that is a huge mistake. We as human beings who have uh, you know, awareness not only of uh, you know, what, what we're being taught by our religion, but awareness of what really makes a human being uh, to be a, a, a truly a, a person, uh, to have that contributive mentality, to have that transcendent ability. We have to have that capacity um, to, to you know, assert strongly. There is only one definition of person, only one. Everything else is destructive. And that definition of human person is human being. That's it. If someone can be objectively established to be human, then that's a person. There's no other qualification. All other qualifications are merely subjective. All other qualifications are merely arbitrary. All other qualifications are completely open. They're vulnerable to any form of political and social manipulation. Uh, and so uh, we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But if you, if we don't set this down from the get-go, there is no such thing as a human being who's not a person. This is how slavery, by the way, was justified. And so many other forms of ostracization, certainly in the, in the Nazi uh, doctors, if you've uh, read that book, or in the Nazi a culture, and it was a culture, it was a deliberately constructed culture, uh, you can certainly see that it wasn't just, um, uh, you know, uh, people who were um, not sufficiently educated. It was not just people who were pre-born. It wasn't just elderly people. It was based on racial, um, you know, people were said to be subhuman, uh, sub-persons. They were human beings, maybe, but they weren't persons. Uh, and so that distinction was made, not just for the slavery issue, but also um, for the uh, um, mass genocide uh, on the basis of race, on the basis of, uh, in many cases, like with respect to the gypsies too, um, you know, their uh, social difficulties, quote unquote, et cetera. So um, again, uh, the most atrocious deeds have been done every single time we decide we're going to define personhood in some other way or qualify it by some other qualifications other than one and only one objective criterion, human being. A person is a human being, and a human being is a person, period. Now, here's what's happened within the culture. Of course, I think all of you uh, know what has happened. Uh, namely, the first thing that, that people say is, um, well, uh, there are some other criteria that have to be considered. You know, uh, for example, it, it could be why your height or your educational level or your IQ 
or your opportunities for economic development or something of that nature, right? So people start thinking of other, what we're going to call extrinsic criteria for a personhood. As I said, personhood should be defined according to human being. Every single human being, because they are human, every single human being, because of that inner light of you know the even the potential for rationality that is within them every single human being has intrinsic value intrinsic worth in herself in himself so that's the idea extrinsic worth would be well you earned something you did something so that people should consider you a worthy person right so you had very good achievement in your life you have a very fine IQ, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, you deem it, um, uh, you know, well, uh, you deem that that person is worthy of, of being considered person. And this, of course, we saw this in Dred Scott versus Sanford, when which the United States Supreme Court uh, basically declared that black people were not person. And because they were not persons, they had to be property chattel slavery came right into being. And then once declared property, um, the Supreme Court said, well, uh, that means that Black people, uh, basically uh, chattel uh, slavery, right, uh, their property, uh, they should must be, uh, you know, dominated by the quote-unquote superior race. That's not me. That's coming from uh, the unanimous opinion of the Supreme Court. Well, how do they get to that state? They separated person from human being. They thought that there were some extrinsic criteria that were more important than the intrinsic worth of the human being, him or herself. So this is uh, the problem from the get-go. And of course, we have seen every form of abuse of this in so many different ways, not just in Nazi Germany, certainly in Stalinist Russia, certainly you know, with respect to the divide between uh, the rural, uh, rural and urban uh, people uh, in the, uh, the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia, et cetera, et cetera. So all these things are pretty clear, the abuses that have been made. Um, once you've gotten to the point of human being, uh, as I'll say in a minute, is uh, you, you really are going to have to define that objectively. But let me hold on to that for one second. What I do want to do is get to Margaret Sanger. And the reason I want to get to her is because she is a prime violator of this first and most important principle of personhood. In other words, she is the kind of person who said, and I'm considering her a person, obviously, is that um, she's the kind of person who actually said, yeah, um, there are considerations um, with respect to birth control and abortion. There are considerations that are more important than being a human being your economic opportunity, right? You're born into a rich family or you're born into a poor family, your educational level, et cetera. And um, at the end of the day, that became racist actually, because of course, those, uh, um, those uh, minorities that uh, have a higher level of, uh, of poverty or a higher level of, uh, of being uneducated, why they must be sub-persons. They must not be persons uh, because they haven't, uh, you know, they don't even have a chance of becoming worthy by these educational and um, uh, uh, economic opportunity criteria. 
So once you got that sort of laid out there, uh, you know, and by the way, she called that, uh, she didn't want a cradle competition uh, with people who are uneducated and impoverished. Unbelievable. I mean, but it's certainly a violation of the principle at hand. Okay, so now we've established at least one thing. Don't ever accept a view of personhood on the basis of any extrinsic criterion. There's only one criterion. It's an intrinsic criterion. It belongs to every human being by their very human existence, and that is human being. So what do we need to do to get to uh, an establishment of human being? We need objective evidence. And so I'm going to talk about two kinds of criteria. This is going to be next week. But I want to talk about the biological case for life, which is very profound and is nowadays unquestionably favors the pro-life position uh, without any doubt whatsoever. You don't have to make any assumptions. Uh, there's a, a full, unique uh, human being there. It's a unique, specific, uh, a specifically human uh, genome uh, in a human zygote. And that zygote is going to produce, that's a special cell um, that uh, unifies the two gametes. And once uh, the cell is formed uh, at fertilization, um, uh, the entire DNA is, is present, yes, but that one zygote is going to be the basis of every single solitary cell that um, uh, a human being will be and become throughout the course of his or her existence. So uh, a truly an amazing thing. And is it all present there at fertilization? Yes. This is why the majority of embryology textbooks say that very thing. Uh, this is the beginning of a new, unique human being. What is it? Fertilization, conception. I know those two things are not the same, but um, right now I'm going to just unify them together uh, because I don't want to get into distinctions before I get into personhood uh, in next week. But for the time being, um, so the first thing is, Everything about this personhood issue has to be based on objective evidence, objective evidence. If a human being exists, a specifically, you know, um, excuse me, a unique, specifically human genome with a zygote, which will produce the entirety of every cell and the unity of every cell within that um, uh, person throughout the course of his or her existence, if that's the case, then um, a person exists. And if a person exists, there's no extrinsic criterion that can compromise. This is what we have to insist on. Our position is objective. Every other position is subjective and arbitrary. Every single extrinsic criterion is, is subjective and arbitrary. And whatever is subjective and arbitrary is always subject to um, being manipulated in social and political environments by highly influential people with highly influential agendas. So uh, we've got the case for the objectivity of a human, uh, objective establishment of a human being, and therefore for the objective establishment of uh, personhood, uh, which is uh, self-identical with the existence of a human being, all other extrinsic criteria being uh, merely arbitrary, subjective, and um, vulnerable to political and social manipulation. All right, let's proceed to, um, our next topic, the four levels of happiness. Believe me, it's all gonna to come together. If we insist on this in the notion of personhood, and then we get to um, the notion of uh, uh, the third and fourth levels of happiness, you will be able to make uh, just, uh, uh, I think, in an unassailable case 
uh, for the pro-life movement, an unassailable case for healing the culture, an unassailable case for basically attacking the dogmatic slumber of the pro-death movement and for um, uh, replacing it within the education systems and our churches. Um, I hate to say it in our churches sometimes, but it's, it's true. Um, uh, with a, a case for the pro-life movement, so much more humane, so much more transcendent, so much more hopeful for our future. And as we shall see when we talk about statistics, so much more uh, productive of emotional health, right? Because I mean, in, in a pro-death environment, when you have level one and level two views of love and freedom and, and personhood and ethics, uh, I, I'll tell you this right now, just sort of taking the, the, you know, a cue from what I'll be discussing next week, you're going to have significantly higher rates of depression, significantly higher rates of substance abuse, familial tensions, um, uh, malaise, uh, suicidal ideation, uh, suicides, and antisocial aggressivity. I'm not kidding you. This is a proven fact. So uh, level three and level four, why? It's not just good for uh, pro-life. It's not just good for little babies and elderly people and people who have disabilities. It's really, really good for you. It's really, really good not to be depressed. It's really, really good to have an open path to salvation. Of course, I don't talk about that in the secular culture because people discount it, but it's really good for your relational health and it's really good for your um, uh, uh, emotional health. Okay, all that being said, um, uh, we, um, we have to get to the point of, well, what can motivate people um, to buy onto our view, um, our pro-life view? Um, you know, in, in, within a secular context, how can we get them to change? How can we change the mainstream culture? I think the tool is the four levels of happiness. The reason I do is I don't know a single one. I've used this in business contexts where I'm lecturing, for example, um, at, at large corporation. Well, you know, I'm talking about ethics, right? In the large corporation, I'm establishing it on the basis of these four levels of happiness, because it's a really rational basis. It's a self-motivational basis that people can affirm. It's something where you don't have to say, well, I'm a Catholic, and that's why I believe this. You just say, I'm a human being, and you test it for yourself. I don't want to manipulate you. You tell me, are you level one, two, three, or four? If you're level three and four, then act like it. If you're level three and four, then defend it, as if this really was uh, uh, were who you are, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so um, let's go through the happiness levels really quickly uh, so we can see uh, what they're like. You'll see a little chart there. And it, on that chart, um, it starts at the bottom, which is level one, and goes up to the top, which is level four. I'm going to go up to that uh, from basis, uh, from, the, from level one to level four in, in that order. So if you just say, well, wait a minute, what's the basis of these levels? You know, why, why are you talking about level? Why don't you just talk about four kinds of happiness? And as we shall see, as we move up the levels, we're going to become more pervasive, enduring, and deep. So the level one and level two, it's not very pervasive. It doesn't do very much good for anybody outside of me. Me is what it's all about in level one and two. But if you want to do something with your life that's pervasive, 
that's going to do something good, optimize the good for the people around you, your family, your friends, your community, your church, the kingdom of God, the culture, the society, if you're so lucky, do you really want to do something good with your life? Well, uh, that if you want something really pervasive, it'll make a real difference. Uh, level one and level two, it's just not, not there. It's out of question. Enduring, that's another really important area. What lasts longer? What is it where you, it's not just the, the happiness of, within yourself lasting longer, though it's certainly that, but it's also much more than that. It's the, the good effects that you have or the effects on the world that you have will last longer too. More on that in a moment. And then deep. What we mean by deep is, does it use your highest quality powers? Your powers, not only of intelligence, so it's certainly your intelligence, but also your powers of um, uh, idealism, your powers of love and empathy, your powers of spirituality, religious reflection, your powers of morality and conscience. What, you know, if you're using your higher powers, the quality of your actions is going to be utterly transformed. You're going to be doing profound things. Your leadership is going to be profound. If you're just doing level one and level two things, you'll never matter to anyone ever. That is the whole point. It's not deep. It's not qualitative. It's not worth keeping. It's just basically self-assertion gone crazy. So uh, uh, just remember, as we go up the levels, we're getting more pervasive, more enduring, and deeper, higher quality as we're going up the levels. Notice also, well, why would it be that as you move up the levels, you have less depression and less um, uh, suicides and less suicidal ideation and, and less um, um, uh, 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 antisocial aggressivity, less anxiety levels, less familial tensions, and less substance abuse? Why? Well, you can see as we go through this, the more pervasive, enduring, and deep and high-quality things that we live for, and try to achieve in our own lives, basically, it brings us a satisfaction which is so much deeper, so much better, so much non-superficial satisfaction, something that has an enduring, transformative change in the world, even unto the eternal kingdom of God. When you do that, then I tell you, you'll be much happier. So it's not just that as we go up the level... You know, every kid thinks level one and level two is going to make me much happier, but it, it really won't. Because what's at level one and level two, as we'll talk about, is, you know, level one is what's more superficial. You know, you know what's, what uh, is easier to do. Let's put it that way. Easier to see. And, of course, immediately gratifying and intensively gratifying. So let's just start off, for example, with level one. So level one happiness comes from some kind of sensorial or materialistic pleasure. So it's something that comes to me from the outside. I bring it on in, right? So it's, a, it's um, uh, for example, uh, Bob Spitzer sees the bowl of linguine out there. And of course, seeing the bowl of linguine, he lunges towards it. He wolfs it down. He goes, yum. And what does he get? He gets, of course, an intense and immediately gratifying bowl of uh, not only garlic-filled 
uh, uh, food uh, that he can taste, but he can smell. And the texture is perfect. I mean, he's happy. He's happy. Um, Bob Spencer sees the Mercedes 500E class with the leather upholstery and feels the, 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 you know, the German engineering going around the corners. And he's happy. He's just happy uh, to, to be in that sort of kinesthetic ecstasy. But the point is, it's not very pervasive, is not very enduring, and is not very deep. All of our kids can understand. They know, you know, that what's immediately gratifying, intense, and surface apparent, and easy to see, and easy to get, that's not going to do it. It's not going to do it. Because uh, you really want something that makes life worth living, something that goes beyond yourself, something that lasts for a long time something that's going to have a qualitative transformative effect on the world. That's what's really going to make a difference. And that's what's really going to bring you true happiness. That's what's really going to make you enduringly happy and make the people around you enduringly happy. All right. So um, you get the point where level one's pretty easy to grasp. Uh, your basic materialism, your basic essential uh, pleasure uh, kind of philosophy. Uh, hedonism in general, if you made that the core of your life. Now, is there anything wrong with level one? No, there's nothing wrong with level one. I mean, it, when it's in its proper place, it's just fine. You know, I, I, I used to enjoy a good cigar every once in a while. Definitely level one. I enjoy a good bowl of linguine. Definitely level one. And when I could drive, of course, I like German engineering going around the corners. Couldn't help it. Is there anything wrong with it? No. But if you make it dominant, if you make it kind of your ultimate definition of success and quality of life, if you make it your dominant level of happiness, it becomes your purpose in life. And if it becomes your purpose in life, can materialism and sensual pleasure really satisfy you? What are you going to do? Live for the next bottle of Chateau Margot? It's not going to work. It, it just eventually, it all becomes boring because God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. More on that in a moment. But the point is, yeah, we're made for so much more, created for so much more, have a soul capable of so much more. It'll never satisfy. We'll be in the, in the sacks of, of, of uh, doldrums and anxiety simply because we'll not only be bored stiff, but we will be unsatisfied in our other three major desires, the other three levels that need to be fulfilled. Let's go to level two, happiness for just a second. And you can probably see uh, pretty clearly um, uh, that level two there from the chart is ego comparative happiness. And ego comparative happiness is a notch up a little bit. It's a little bit more pervasive, a little bit more enduring, and a little bit deeper than pure hedonism or pure materialism uh, or just living for, uh, you know, sensual pleasure, et cetera. So it's a little bit higher, um, but, and so because it is, uh, we'll call it higher, but let's, what is it? To, you know, all of us have what's called self-consciousness or self-awareness, this capacity to double back and reflect on ourselves and to grasp ourselves grasping ourselves. When we do that, we're the only creature in the world, of course, besides God, but we're the only creature that has the capacity to grasp itself, grasping itself that we know of, um, haven't met any uh, intelligent self-conscious uh, beings yet that um, are aliens, 
but maybe they're out there. Who knows? The Catholic Church doesn't deny it. But the point I'm getting to is, if we're the only creature out there, then we have an, um, a quality, a capability that no other creature has. We can not only grasp ourselves, but we can also either selfishly try to bring the whole locus of control over to us. We can try to make ourselves the center of attention, ourselves the center of comparative advantage, or we can make, uh, you, you can, we can invest ourselves, the, the self that we grasp, we can invest it in the world around us, in our families, in our friends, in our religion, in our communities, in our um, uh, businesses, in our um, you know, culture, and in our society, et cetera. We could make an investment and try to do something good beyond ourselves that we will call level three in just a moment. But let's reflect on level two for just a, a quick second uh, so you get it. I mean, basically, once you want to make yourself the center of attention, once you want to make yourself the pinnacle of ego comparative advantage, you will get an ego jolt from that. Uh, no kidding. Um, you know, people are admiring you. You go, wow, I really am that great. And, you know, so uh, Spitzer, you are a fantastic chess player and you have achieved much. Please continue talking about that subject. It makes me happy. But in a very superficial way, a non-pervasive, enduring, and deep way, uh, really, uh, obviously, in order to get that kind of status, you're going to need some education. So you're going to have to give up a little bit of the uh, immediate gratification. You're going to have to give up a little bit of the surface apparent. You know, I, I popped the linguine in my mouth and already ecstasy has begun. You're going to have to give up a little bit of that to get a little bit more pervasive, enduring, and deep. And so that's the, kind of the first level. But uh, it might interest you to know that 72% of our culture basically is level two dominant, at least according to our uh, way, uh, you know, our uh, little statistical analysis uh, that we did when we were trying to uh, ask people, you know, where, where do you think you are? Where do you think your kids are, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, ego comparative dominant, who's achieving more? Who's achieving less? Who's got more power? Who's got less power? Who's got more status? Who's got less status? Who's more intelligent? Who's less intelligent? Who's more popular? Who's less popular? Um, you get the point. Who's a winner and who's a proverbial loser? And of course, I put the, 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 uh, the tone in my voice for the loser because so many of our kids say it exactly that way. It's almost like pure contempt rolling off the lips. So the, the, the point at hand, though, is will this make you happy? No, as we'll see, it'll just make you profoundly unhappy. And that's the key to getting our kids and our even our young adults, even our middle age to level three and level four. So our main purpose, but you get pretty much what ego comparative advantage is. I get the comparative advantage. I feel happy. I bring the locus of control to me. I feel happy. You tell me I'm a great guy. I feel happy, stops there, goes nowhere else, right? I belong to the Mensa Society. Wow, my life is completed. I have achieved it all. I've got an IQ which people really like. Well, is that really it? And of course it isn't. And uh, some of our kids will probably say, yeah, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with going to Harvard? Well, nothing's wrong with going to Harvard. It's just like level one in its proper place, level two is a very good thing when it becomes the only thing that matters. 
when it becomes, you know, our ego comparative dominant, when that becomes the real reason for our lives. Oh my gosh, it is ugly. Stay tuned in about five seconds. I'll try and uh, bring it up. Let's go to level three because self consciousness actually does, you know, go two ways, right? Could go pointing to me, but it could go from me pointing to the rest of the world. So I, I, I would say that level three then becomes a contributive happiness. And God gave us three really good gifts to help us get from just ego comparative dominance, right? Just egocentricity par excellence, if I can put it that way. I'm at the top. I'm me. I'm great, right? To going to, oh, wait a minute. I would like to make an optimal positive difference. An optimal positive difference to the world around me. Before I die, I want to make sure that I've made an optimal positive difference to my family, my friends, to my community, to my business colleagues and stakeholders. I want to make an optimal positive difference to my church, kingdom of God, those eternal domains, the culture, you know, and the society itself. I want to make an optimal positive. I want, you know, I don't want to get to 80 years old and go, hmm. Now, what was the difference between the value of my life and that of a rock? And I have to say, well, the, the rock probably did more. I mean, the rock, uh, I was net negative in terms of good. Uh, and I basically caused people more problems than I ever resolved. Uh, I basically was a net negative versus a net positive. If you started thinking that my life has no value or negative value, you're going to move immediately from incipient despair, ultimately to full-blown despair. That's why you see that so many narcissists are suicidal. So many narcissists have high depression, high anxiety, and high antisocial aggressivity. And people avoid them like the plague unless they have to relate to them because they're in a power position over them. But if they don't have the power position over them, then, of course, people go, wow, you know, here comes contemptuous Joe who's just going to run me right over. I'm poised for flight. And then, of course, Joe recognizes it, as we'll see, and he's a none-too-happy person. But above all, as St. Augustine pointed out, the contemptuous man is not just high anxiety. Didn't Augustine didn't say that. But he's lonely. The contemptuous man is by himself. Oh, yes, he's superior to everybody but nobody can stand to be around him except his mother. So the, we got that pretty much situated. But contribution makes all the difference in the world. And of course, contribution can come in one of two ways. It can come, uh, you know, from doing something, right? So you, you know, Father Hezekiah is making a, uh, uh, this uh, um, web, webinar available to everybody, right? So uh, he's got this organization that's bringing all these things out. It's and not only helping us who are on the webinar, it's helping, uh, you know, the people, um, you know, who uh, um, are going to be touched by us. It, you know, it's certainly helping the kingdom of God, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it could be doing something like that, doing some good or making a difference to our stakeholders in a business or making a huge difference to our family members or whatever it may be, especially making a difference on level three and level four. We're really enhancing somebody's ability to love, somebody's ability to be ethical. 
somebody's ability to 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 be religiously uh, authentically religious and so all of these um areas then are really paramount um in importance but that contribution you pretty much get it it could be on the level of doing but it could also be on the level of just being with so in other words pure empathy i take the time to listen to my friend who is suffering that is a good contribution not doing anything necessarily, except giving my time, giving my presence, giving my authenticity, giving my love, giving my concern. It's not necessarily doing uh, in, in the, you know, the active sense that we use it in this culture, but it is a, certainly a very important thing. Or uh, you just want some company sometimes. Uh, you know, and, and you know, one time I remember uh, coming in, I said, well, how come you and mom, to my parents, how come you and mom are always just sitting on your bed and you just read different books, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And my father just looked up and he goes, oh, reading a book with your mom makes all the difference. Isn't that true? Just being with, to taking the time to be with somebody uh, in, in just the, the you know, the, the gentlest of ways, the most affirming of ways, that the most affectionate of ways. Uh, that my father and mother were just sitting there reading their own private books. You know, dad was reading some on war and mom was reading something on relationships somewhere along the line. So anyway, the, the point is, though, that um, that uh, you, you get contribution elevates the soul. It, a contribution makes an objective difference, gives us an objective legacy. We leave this world having done something worthy of ourselves worthy of the gift of creation that we were given. We didn't bury our talent in the sand. We did, we invested it in every way that we could to make a difference to God, to others, uh, even to the culture itself. Let's get to level four, because as even pagans like Plato and, and Aristotle recognized, right? Hey, we're ultimatizers. We're transcendent beings. Now, of course, as religious people, we recognize that right away, right? And uh, um, uh, no, no question about that. And um, but the uh, uh, but Plato and, and Aristotle recognize, yeah, we need something absolute and ultimate to live for. We'll never be satisfied with just some love or some truth or some purpose. We want absolute meaning. We want ultimate meaning. We want lasting meaning. We would like eternal meaning. We would like even uh, perfect truth, perfect love, perfect goodness, perfect beauty, and perfect being. Indeed, can anybody doubt that there is only one perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and, and being? That would be God. And he's the only one because you can only have one perfect being, only one perfect truth. If you want the uh, proof for that, all you need to do is go to my book, New Proofs for the Existence of God. Contributions of Contemporary Physics and Philosophy, simply turn to chapter seven and eight. Okay, uh, very quickly then we get to uh, uh, the level four, but not only that, God has been present to us from the very beginning. God's been present to us in our hearts. And when God is present to us in our hearts, that means that, uh, um, that you know we've almost been in communication with him since our conception. We'll talk about souls later. But the main point right now is, yeah, we have a yearning for God. Uh, you know, the numinous experience, as Rudolf Otto would call it, that's intrinsic to every human being, of every religion, of every culture. 
So we want to be in relationship with God. That's our ultimate purpose. That's our eternal purpose. And when we are in ultimate uh, relationship with God, we get ultimate meaning, eternal meaning, et cetera. Now, of course, uh, is that really provable? Absolutely. Just take a look. I've got six studies on my website, starting with the 2004 uh, study from the American Psychiatric Association, which shows that when you compare religiously affiliated versus non-religiously affiliated people, religiously affiliated people, uh, or let's look at it the opposite way, non-religiously affiliated people actually have uh, much higher rates of depression. You can see this for yourself in the study. It's all there online free of charge. Much higher rates of anxiety, much higher rates of uh, antisocial aggressivity, suicides, suicidal ideation, etc. Religious people are free. Religious people have such a qualitatively better life, and not to, because it's in concert with God, the Creator who made us, and of course He knows what's good for us, and in turn. Um, uh, we get eternal life, we, we get eternal salvation, we get ultimate meaning, we get relationships that have been purified in love, where our egos no longer blur and, and, and eliminate the very possibility of love. A level four happiness, why that's permanent, eternal, absolute, and ultimate happiness. And, and of course, that happens ultimately in the next life. But even in this life, significantly higher or significantly lower rates of depression, anxiety, uh, antisocial uh, uh, aggressivity, uh, substantially lower rates of familial tension, substance abuse, suicides, and suicidal ideation. Enough said. Okay, let's just go to the comparison game really, really quickly. I'm not going to have time to talk about the techniques to get out of the comparison game. I'll just give you one technique. You've got to move to level three and level four, uh, and we have some ways of addressing this. But what's the comparison game? This is what converts the kids. The comparison game is essentially um, when I decide that level two and level one are what will make life worth living. I have made it a dominant in my life. I have made it the one thing that really matters. It's my definition of success. It's my definition of quality of life. It's my definition of self-worth. So all these things uh, you know, are, are dependent on level two. What happens when level two becomes dominant. Well, you break the world down into basically winners, losers, and drawers. If you lose, it's pretty clear you're gonna be depressed. If the only thing that matters is winning and you're losing, or people think you're a loser, or you, you know, people dis, you know, just diss you uh, because you're not smart enough, or uh, you know, they're smarter than you are, or you're not athletic enough, the Lord knows I'm certainly not athletic enough. Etc. All these things, right? You you get you start getting depression. You start feeling intense jealousy. You start feeling, um, you know, uh, uh, obviously a sense of, of failure, a sense of being judged. All these things are incredibly negative and make you feel very unhappy. Now, most of the kids will say, "Oh man!" But if I'm a winner, then I got everything I want, top of the heap. I'm all over it. And uh, I really should be happy. But nay, nay, it's not like that at all. As a matter of fact, you get to be a winner, but you can never get off the climbing of the ladder, the climbing of the hill. You can never get off. If you hit a plateau and the only thing that matters is winning and there's still all these people above you, people above you who could judge you inferior, people above you who could say, 
I'm just, you know, I've got about 50 IQ points. Or people could judge you and say, gosh, you uncoordinated Spitzerian idiot. You know, what do you think you're doing? You know, and you, you just you realize that I can never get to the top. My whole meaning and purpose in life of getting to the top, it's all over. I hit the plateau. And remember what I said about St. Augustine, the contemptuous man is lonely? Absolutely. What, what, what do winners do best at, in their narcissistic, you know, um, uh, fit? They, they, they hold people in contempt. They think that people are inferior to, to, to them, not worthy of associating with, uh, you know, they're just above it all. And of course, like I said, contemptuous people, uh, you know, what are they yearning for deep down? They want you to admit your inferiority and they want you to bow down and worship before their presence. They want you to give them accolades day in and day out. Spitzer, you really are a tremendous guy. You're a really smart guy. And really, we just like everything about you because you're just so special. And of course, if you stop giving me the accolades I want, what's my response? Who in the heck do you think you are? You little inferior. You don't want to give me accolades? Okay, I'll make you pay. Somebody's got to pay. And of course, yeah. What do contemptuous people do? They make other people's life miserable. They put other people down. If the, if the accolade does not come, if the superior godlike status is not acknowledged, you get the point. And, and they're lonely people. And, and, and people, they don't want to be around them. But there are many other things. Oh, if you're a winner, I do not ever make a mistake in public. I can tell you this. I used to be a pretty smart kid when I was in high school. I was in a physics class. In my physics class, you know, I was giving a presentation. I only seen the word spectroscopy uh, in a book, you know, so I never heard it pronounced. And so I'm giving this little talk about, you know, spectroscopic analysis and spectroscopy, but I'm pronouncing it the whole time spectroscopy. And so this kid comes up to me and goes, uh, uh, Spitzer, that word spectroscopy, you pronounce it spectroscopy four times. And now everybody in the entire class thinks you're a constant idiot. You go, oh, my gosh, you take this home, your entire identity, right? Level two. That's what really matters, that you're the smart guy or you're the special guy, right? All of a sudden, you go home and you think about the failure. You think about the exposure. You think about the broken facade. And, and uh, I don't have to tell you, um, you play that tape 100 times and then have suicidal feeling. Been there, done that. Level two is utterly destructive to winners as much as it is uh, to anybody else who's having challenges and difficulties. So let's go to drawers. What about drawers? What, what's going to happen to them? Well, essentially, they swing back and forth. Uh, I, I'm not kidding you. This is like, you know, being on a seesaw. I mean, at one point, they're elevated. At the next point, they're down on the bottom of the ground. And, and of course, what happens then is they suffer the emotional, the negative emotional effects of narcissism, being the winner. And also being the loser, right? The, the, the effects of being, you know, judged and so forth. And they're going, bleu, 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 you know, and uh, in addition to that, you just add on fear of failure, fear of loss of esteem. You're right. Your, your kid is so uh, panicked about the SAT because everybody knows that the SAT really defines who you are. They can't even think straight. The possibility, the mere possibility of getting, 
you know, I don't know, and 1,100, 1,000, whatever, on the, on the first two, the verbal mathematical of the SAT. And you think to yourself, oh, my gosh, my life would be over. Now, people are going to ask me. I can't get into the right colleges. My life is over. Try taking the test when you have that kind of fear of failure. Don't worry. It'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay. I give my, what's the whole point of the comparison game for the kids? Well, for everybody, you can't win it. It'll never be enough. And then remember what I said? Our most profound desires to make a contribution, to love, to receive the love of others who receive our love so graciously, right? That, that idea of, of, of familial love. And then on top of it, you know, God and religion and, and the fulfillment that comes from living for an absolute and sacrificing myself for something that really makes an absolute uh, difference. And, and, and growing to know Christ, my Savior, the God within, who turns out to be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? I, I have none of that. I mean, I'd be bereft, right? And so, yes, of course, we're not even bereft, knowingly bereft. We're instinctively bereft. That's the whole point of the American Psychiatric Association study and the six concomitant studies that have come out since then. We need to be in relationship with God. We need to be in love with God. We need to be, uh, as it were, serving God for our own psychic sakes. But more than that, we also, without that, we feel so empty, so uh, bereft, so empty that, well, let's just say we feel a special kind of emptiness that I'll describe later as spiritual emptiness uh, and, and spiritual um, uh, loneliness, uh, spiritual uh, dread, um, which is, you know, kind of like an attack of, of conscience, also a dread of, of death as the finality, a, a dread of the, of the darkness of meaninglessness, etc. But that is a spiritual alienation, loneliness, emptiness, and dread uh, that comes in its wake. So, yeah, uh, level two is a disaster area, level one and two. The comparison game is a disaster area on the level of emptiness and alienation on the level of the comparison game emotions, we there's only one way out. And I, I, I can't do the next slide. I have to skip over it. But there's only one way out. We have to help people get to where we are, what we know to be true, level three and level four. We have to get them to a dominant contributive identity where they do want to make an optimal positive difference to their friends, to their families, to the people around them and their communities, right? To their businesses, to their churches, to the kingdom of God, the community, the society, and, and um, the culture, et cetera. So we want them uh, to get to that, but most assuredly, we want to get them to level four. It's the only way that we'll get the absolute grounding, which they yearn for. Remember St. Augustine, for thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are truly restless until they rest in thee. It'll never be enough. We were meant to be uh, satisfied by perfect truth, love, goodness, beating, and hope. And there is only one perfect truth, love, goodness, beating, and hope, and that's God. And it's God who is manifest fully in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where we want to get people to. And we know, uh, I can tell you, the statistical study, you don't have to just assert it on your own level. The statistical studies will prove if you don't have that kind of a God, if you don't have that kind of a contributive mentality, you will be unhappy, depressed, anxious, suicidal. And, and of course, uh, you'll be a bear for everybody else. A lot of antisocial aggressivity and familial tensions and, and uh, substance abuse. Enough said. Okay, 
Uh, we need to get them to level three and four. That's the solution. Okay, you move the kids to level three and four. What's the first thing that we notice right off the bat? Level three and, uh, well, I should say all four levels of happiness affect what? All the categories of cultural discourse. I'm just going to take um, really quickly the, uh, the ones on quality of life and success very, very quickly. As, as happiness goes, so also goes my view of success and quality of life. So um, it, you can just depend. If you're a level one kind of a guy, your view of success is going to be, it's going to follow the happiness model, which has become purpose in life, right? It's going to follow it right down to the core. Your view of success will be level one. The guy who dies with the most toys wins. The guy who dies with the most pleasure impulse per second wins. The guy who had the highest quality pleasures, the best wines and the best car wins, and so forth and so on. That's who you're going to be. And so what's a good quality of life? Good quality of life, having the Mercedes and, and the, um, uh, the wine and the pleasure per second and everything like that. So what happens when, you know, let's just take a, uh, a little pre-look at the euthanasia movement. What happens if a person defines quality of life as level one, and all of a sudden, I don't know, you have a business loss, a job loss, uh, something happens uh, in, in your life where uh, you can't sustain that great quality of living and pleasure per second, things are getting kind of minim minimized. Well, what happens? You lose it. You lose everything, quote unquote, that matters. And if you lose everything that matters, little wonder that our kids today, right? Just in, in 12 years, this is pre-COVID, in just 12 years between 2005 and 2017, the suicide rates of our kids went up by 56%. The anxiety rates went up 63%. The uh, homicide rates went up 23%. I'm not kidding you. I mean, this is, this is what's happening. Level one and level two is replacing level three and all important level four. Remember, as level four decreases, religion decreases, the anxiety rates are going to go streaking up, suicide rates up, depression rates up, and absolutely, and by the way, homicide rates up. So we see this happening on a grand scale, um, uh, you know, that uh, the suicide rates, by the way, you know, 56% increase suicide rates is pretty, pretty devastating uh, for just 12 years of increase. But it's, level one is, and, and level two increases with a concomitant level four decrease, it's killing us. It's killing our culture. See, the only way out is, is to change this uh, through any kind of tactic we, we, we can. The same thing with what happens if level two becomes my dominant, eco-comparative happiness. You know, so, okay, let's suppose I get to 80 years old. I don't know. Uh, let's suppose I get to 60 years old and my tennis game starts going down. And, uh, you know, I start getting eyesight problems. Blindness, of course, would be a travesty. Um, and, and so forth. What happens, you know, if I get uh, a little bit older and, you know, some of those memory issues are coming into, into play, you know, I've got a few little memory issues uh, coming up now and again, you know, and all of a sudden, what does that mean? I'm less of a human being. What does that mean? I can't be happy. I won't have the opportunities to be happy. I won't have the opportunities for social recognition. I won't have the opportunities for people to give me the accolades I, I so strongly desire, et cetera. So all these things are happening and you are going to lose it again. The moment that that happiness level goes down and it will go down, you cannot maintain a narcissistic outlook forever. Uh, old age will get you if something else doesn't get you beforehand.
But the point I'm making is that this can never be ultimately satisfying. It is definitely uh, right uh, leading to euthanasia on a major scale, commit suicide, right? Or have a doctor do it for you. I, I just have, you know, I just, I'm not who I was. You know, life is all over, right? I just can't have a Mercedes anymore. Life's all over. And so we see it everywhere. We see it, um, like I said, not only in the increased suicide rates, but we also see it in very pro-death stuff, the euthanasia movement, abortion, et cetera. My baby has no opportunity uh, for economic opportunities or education. Of course, nobody can say that there's no such opportunity, but they're being told this by propaganda uh, artists who, who say, oh, you know, babies who don't have that, quote unquote, opportunity for a better life, blah, 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 and with the implicit message, you know, that if you don't have level two, you're not just a loser, life's not worth living. Okay, let's go to love. I just want to finish here um, uh, very quickly. I do want to get to your Q&A, but I'm going to have to take this up in my next talk too a little bit because I can't finish it completely. Um, let's face facts uh, here. Uh, it's not just the culture that's going happiness, uh, uh, the dominant, ha uh, dominant level one happiness and dominant level two happiness. It's, it's something else that's going on. Love is being transformed. Love is becoming superficialized. Love is following the tack of happiness. Now, you may have read this book by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. And what level one people commonly do, because they're focused on sensorial and sensual pleasure. So if you're focused on that, then you're going to you know, identify love with what? Sexual pleasure and also with basically a feeling of being loved by somebody else. So that's, uh, you know, very normal, you know, so if, if uh, people are really overtly friendly and, you know, there's feelings of love everywhere, storge is what uh, C.S. Lewis would call it, the, the Greek word for affection, right? If there's feelings, of, or, you know, you have some kind of, uh, you know, sexual gratification of some kind or another, then life is worth living. I have love. I found love. Now you look at that and go, well, is this really the case? Look at every song you practically hear that's coming out of the, you know, the um, popular culture. And most of them identify love with uh, either some form of sexual love or felt love or affectionate love, um, you know, but it, it doesn't go very much beyond that. Uh, level two love is, you know, if it becomes dominant, right? There's no other form of love. You can always have level one love, that's okay. But if it becomes the dominant, that's when, of course, it, it becomes very destructive, not only to me, but to other people around me and to the relationships themselves. So um, because it, they're so superficial, it can't be sustained. Um, and of course, you get these competitions between people with level two. The main thing with level two is love me, right? I want you to love me. I want you not just to feel affection for me. I want you to feel esteem for me. I want you know those feelings of your friendship based on esteem, uh, your a friendship based on respect, right? Not just uh, ordinary respect. I, I, I want you know I, I don't care for your your contributive love. I don't care for your caritas. I don't care for your care. I don't want you to care about me. I just want you. To, to kind of respect me and I want you to love me and esteem me and I want to be on the top of the relationship. 
And of course, as you know, when a narcissist loves, right, you know, uh, um, there's no love in it. It's all about being loved, not only being respected, but being on top of the relationship. I'm the dominant guy. And if you acknowledge that, well, that's love, isn't it? Now, a lot of our kids, they think, oh, I've not been sucked in by anything like that. Oh, my gosh. It's everywhere. Presence on every television show. I mean, just look at these shows, you know, television shows and marriages and so forth and so on. I just keep asking these kids, what do you think this is? Uh, you know, do you think this is love one, two, three or four? Do you think this is about the couple? Uh, each person in the couple has to be on the top, has to be pounding down the other guy. It's always a competition. Who's right? You know, or who's got the better idea or who's got more money coming in or who's in charge of this? I mean, ah, I mean, it just this is the mistaken view of love, of being in control and being on top. And of course, uh, some nice feelings to go along uh, with that uh, narcissist. But love three, I don't have to tell you, but that's all about um, that. Finally, we get to the notion of love commensurate with Jesus Christ. Finally, we get to a notion of love that is really self-gift to make right this definition of love. When you move to level three, uh, love becomes right. Uh, 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 you know, looking for the good news in the other, as we'll talk about later. But when you look for the good news in the other, and then that, that natural empathy that, that comes out of that, begin to see the intrinsic value, the intrinsic worth, the deep transcendental soul-like character, that eternal and absolute meaning that's in that human being that's before you. No matter whether you view them as high IQ or low IQ, better athlete, less athlete, but more beautiful, less beautiful, more successful, less successful more popular, less popular. It's irrelevant. When caritas occurs, when the empathy occurs, a unity forms with the other, whereby doing the good for the other is just as easy, if not easier, than doing the good for myself. So this becomes then the primary um, uh, kind of transition point where we can actually start looking for the other's good before our own good, or at least commensurate with our own good. A level four, I'm just going to give you a one uh, sentence definition here with respect to level four love. Uh, pretty clearly, that's where I not only see you as a precious, uniquely good and lovable human being. I see you act for you and respect you for being, yes, a uniquely good and lovable human being, a uniquely worthwhile, good and lovable human being, but also that you are an eternal being, that you have a sense of absolute meaning uh, in your life, that you are in communion with the sacred divine one who is inside of you, and, and that, that through all of this, you have a sense of morality and a sense of contribution and service that is going to move far beyond yourself, irrespective, regardless of your IQ, regardless of your beauty, regardless of your athleticism, regardless of your po popularity, you are a being of ultimate, transcendent, eternal, absolute worth that is uniquely good, lovable, and intrinsically worthwhile. Yes, you're all of those things. Now, once I see you in that fashion, then a whole new way of love 
a whole new way of entering into communion with other human beings, a whole new way of giving ourselves over in common cause with that other human being to the people around us, that suddenly springs alive. Now we've got to agape. And of course, we got um, we can get you know um, um, uh, near agape with level three, but we need both level three and level four to get to caritas, to get to agape. Now, what does that mean with respect to philia and eros? I'll just say this. There's a philia one and a philia two, and a philia is friendship. So you can have a friendship one, two, three, and four. Um, and you can have an eros, a sexual love, one, two, three, and four. And boy, those four categories make all the difference. Every kid deep down wants to be on level uh, three and four, both with respect to friendships and with respect to sexual love. All we got to do is tell them how to get there. And that's something a subject for a different day. Anyway, I apologize for going over. I do want to get your questions. Ask away, and um, I will try and get them answered as best I can. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Father. Thank you for your uh, for your careful preparation and, and the time spent with us this evening. Um, all right, so moving into Q&A here. Uh, the first question, Father, that we'll begin with, it um, came in anonymously. Uh, but it captures what a, a couple of people are asking, and that is, how do you propose one discuss these various levels um, with the culture when most actually only thinks level one is the thing that matters? If that's their only desire and have uh, no care about anything else, how can you engage with them? Yeah, I have to make a distinction. If you can have a real conversation with somebody, I would engage them and just say, hey, I read a really interesting book. Like I have a book called The Four Levels of Happiness. But actually, in Healing the Culture, I have all of these explained um, in two chapters in the book. But the main thing is, is get something like, you know, I read this interesting book, Healing the Culture, this interesting book, um, Find True Happiness. And just say, you know, uh, here's what I discovered, blah, 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 blah. But get to the point of the comparison game. That's going to be the telling technique. And then all of a sudden, when it goes, oh, my gosh, like when Camille Pauly did this with her students, uh, this is taught in the classroom that we have a, a life choices uh, curriculum that comes through um, life principles. Um, uh, I mean, a life uh, choices, life principles curriculum that comes through um, healing the culture. Um, and uh, if you get that, what's interesting is when uh, Camille presents those four levels of happiness, it generally can convert a person. Um, when she had 51% of her students were um, pro-abortion to start with, that after four weeks of class, just getting some basic instruction on the four happiness levels and some principles that go along with it, uh, she changed that percentage to 87%. So um, uh, I'm sorry, we're, uh, 51% was pro-abortion. Uh, that 23% um, uh, were pro-abortion at the end of the at the end of the class. So that is a remarkable change. If you can't get the classroom time or the conversation time. Uh, sometimes the best thing to do is to say, hey, uh, you, you ought to go to, um, you know, um, MajaCenter.com and just take a look at this book called, uh, this uh, video series free of charge called the Happiness Series. I just heard this. It's really, really interesting. And uh, don't worry, it's not going to be an overdose of religion. Uh, it's just like getting your life together, finding out about purpose in life. And that's probably the best way to do it. Uh, so if you just go to um, MajaCenter.com, uh, just go to free uh, videos and articles. Just click on the one that says um, uh, four levels of happiness. 
Nice. And we'll also we'll link uh, participants to your to both of those books, Four Levels and Healing the Culture after this series. Sure. Uh, this question also comes in anonymously. Um, Father Spitzer, what do you recommend for spouses who are maybe on opposite sides uh, of, you know, this divide? Let's say one is on level one or two and the other is at level three or four. Yeah, it's a non-optimal deal. I have to tell you, I'm not a fatalist. I think that people can actually convert, but you're going to have to bring that level one and two uh, a party. You've got to bring them up to level three and four, at least on some sort of recognizable superficial level. If you don't, it, I got to tell you, the poor level three and four person will be constantly snuffed out of existence by an almost barbarity of level one and level two uh, narcissism. It just just an or hedonism. And, you know, the I keep telling the kids again and again, please, if you are level three and four, marry someone who's level three and four, you know, please. Get someone like yourself. Now, there's nothing, you know, if so, if two level two people uh, get together, I mean, it's going to be like, you know, one of those TV serial marriages. You know, it's, it's going to be terrible. People always trying to get the upper hand. People always screaming at each other, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it's just not worth it. Hypersensitivities and do- ego domination everywhere you look. Uh, pretty, pretty lousy. So um, I guess marry your own kind is the best advice. But if you can't do that, I would get them that book, Finding True Happiness or something, and just say, here's an interesting book I found. You know, if you don't want the religious parts, at least just look at the, uh, the first five chapters. It could change your life. By the way, I, my lectures on this, even in businesses, change people's lives. They get it for the first time really makes a huge difference. That's why I think, you know, if you wanted to expose them just to a videotape of modulacenter.com, like the four levels of happiness uh, videotape, that could make a big difference. Just watching a videotape. Al, I see you have a hand raised here up on screen. Go ahead and unmute yourself and uh, ask your question. Father, how do you address the statement of our president that he does not believe that life begins at conception? Well, uh, it's a very level one and two statement, uh, which I'll <laughs> prove uh, by the end of next week's talk. But um, how to how to address it? Um, well, I think uh, sometimes you, if you're gonna say that, the first thing you got to do is, for the sake of sheer authenticity, please don't go around calling yourself and you know a serious Catholic. I mean, that, please don't do that. It's just, just totally not only. It is, is it a lie? It basically is so utterly misleading to people, particularly people who have not had yet the chance for a lot of educated uh, self-reflection. And so uh, I would say the first thing is, is you got to say, stop saying you're a serious Catholic. Stop saying it. Uh, you're not. And, and uh, what you're doing and what you're advocating is not something that a serious Catholic uh, would indicate. I mean, it's a genocide. And as I will say next week, a strong case on the both a biological level and uh, on other levels can be made uh, for the um, not only the humanity, but the personhood of a human being. So um, uh, I, I don't think you're going to convince uh, uh, President Biden with abstractions like personhood. That's not going to do any good. But definitely the four levels of happiness 
just as it can make differences to people who uh, always said, you know, I'm going to be pro-abortion forever. And then all of a sudden, only 23% or uh, whatever, uh, or 13, whatever it is, 13, uh, yeah, 23% wind up being, um, uh, you know, pro-abortion uh, afterwards. That That's something uh, uh, really quite uh, remarkable. Now, 13%, I should have said, 13% wound up being uh, pro-abortion afterwards. So I think I start with the four levels of happiness. Father, this question comes from Mary. She asks, isn't it a danger in our culture that people have the wrong idea of what is good and dedicate themselves to that, even though it's outside of themselves, so they think they're at level three? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, People have a lot of good feelings of contribution, but when it comes to the acting part, um, they generally don't. And the way you can tell is they're not trying to move more deeply into it. So you just, all you got to do is take Paul's uh, uh, hymn to love in the first letter to the Corinthians. Love is patient, love is kind, love is merciful, does not grow angry, doesn't boast. You take that and you just say, okay, um, let's take a look at um, what that's like. Are you trying to move toward that? Is that a specific goal in your life? I'd like to be more patient, like to be more kind. I'd like to boast less. I'd like to be angry less, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I would say the first thing you know is you can tell if a person is striving, you know, perfection, nobody's going to be perfect in the hymn to love uh, in this lifetime. And nobody's going to be perfect in level three and level four in this lifetime. But if somebody is striving for it and somebody's really trying to make an effort to, to become more and more like Christ in that sense of love, I, I would say, um, that person is probably authentically there. But if a person's not making a, an attempt at it and it's just one f- f- fleet, free-flowing feeling after another, uh, that probably is, uh, you know, delusion. And I would, you know, I, sometimes people open themselves and they say, you know, just say, well, you know, the, the way you can tell if a person is genuinely level three is whether they're making an effort to be more level three you know, to be more him to love than 1 Corinthians 13. And as I saw you had a question or a hand up earlier. My question was the one that was just asked. The difference between two and three, people that want to do societal contributions, but that they still do it because of the ego. Level two, not in level three. That was my question. Uh, That's a very good question. I've got a whole section on that in both of my books, Finding True Happiness and in Healing the Culture. And I just, uh, you know, I call it uh, level three with uh, uh, level two competition. What happens is we roll back into narcissism. So the operative question becomes, I'm doing more good than you are, right? So in other words, uh, you're basically, while you're doing all these goods, you're sort of listing them in your mind. And then as you list them in your mind, you're constantly thinking and comparing yourself to others level two wise, right? You're comparing yourselves to uh, others and going, well, I I do do more good than you. I I do more of these things than than you do. I do uh, have uh, uh, much more pride than you to just get. But anyway, the the point is pretty clear. Uh, You know, it's, it's become a comparison game and everybody, absolutely everybody has to check themselves. Everybody is subject to turning, you know, to creating 
a, a level three comparison game, which of course, you know, blows up the level three part of it. Uh, we'll probably end with this question then. It came in anonymously as well. This person asks, how does an introvert achieve levels three and four? They seem very focused on outreach, joining and uh, community activities, which is not very much an introvert quality. Well, you know what um, Mother Teresa used to call herself, right? She said, you know, she started off as kind of an introvert, but what did she do? She learned to serve. She went into these schools and, uh, you know, she began to say, well, you know, I can make a difference. I can teach these kids. You know, I, I, maybe I don't feel comfortable here, but I'm going to try. Now, you don't have to be a teacher to be contributive. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, you can make a huge difference uh, to people by quietly serving, um, you know, or quietly working with your, uh, your family at home. Uh, you, you know, um, extroverted tendencies are, are, are not necessary. Now, what I mean by quiet serving is um, I'd say that introverts are great tutors. They just are. They're great one-on-one -on -one people. Yes, they do lose energy in a crowd. But introverts also have such deep self-reflectivity that they actually bring a, a huge, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, dimension uh, to family life. They bring a huge dimension to, like I, I would say, one-on-one -on -one friendships. I mean, sometimes the best friendships you can have are with an introverted person because they are deep and because they share honestly their depth and they are looking for authenticity, many of them. Uh, you know, who are level three and four. So, uh, and then, gosh, look at some of your best prayers. I mean, look at the whole monastic tradition. I mean, in terms of level four, right? I mean, you're talking major, uh, a lot of monks are in introverted. A lot of the great mystics were what? Introverted. I mean, their love is not in any way inhibited. Their love of Christ, not in, 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 you know, their introversion doesn't, doesn't uh, it's not compromise it uh, doesn't compromise their sense of love for Christ one single bit yes there are the Teresa of Avilas in this world of course super extroverts uh, you know who get things done but there's the Therese of Lisieux in this world uh, the little way and you ought to see just read her book read her um, little diary uh, her, you know her autobiography um, you know it's unbelievable and so uh, she she's got uh, again you know uh, introverted uh, tendency. Um, interesting to say, a lot of Carmelites do, and they're strongly in love with God, strongly in love with people, very deep in their friendships. But yes, I mean, the extrovert is going to have a much, much easier time uh, relating to the big crowd, relating to the classroom, relating to the speech or something of that nature. But plenty of room for introverts, plenty of room for everybody in God's kingdom. Thanks, everyone. Keep Father in your prayers. Father, keep us in your prayers. And if I could ask you to please close us in prayer this evening. That Absolutely. And may Almighty God bless us and uh, send his Holy Spirit down upon us to inspire, guide, and protect us so that everything we do will be brought to fruition in his will so that we might also be able to impart the wisdom of the ages that has been given to us by Christ Jesus our Lord through the church in so many different ways so that not only in appreciating it, but sharing it, we may transform the culture. May Almighty God bless you all, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 
We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.